2: You have a bunch of dodgy affidavits that don't add up. You have um, a group of people with uh, dubious credentials.
3: That's your no characterization. Evidence. That's all your characters So far, you've provided no evidence. You might as whatever. well be working for Dominion and Smartmatic. I'm just waiting for you to provide the evidence. Yeah, well, you'll see it in court.
4: That was back in 2021. And now we will hear all about it in court. As the Kraken lady, Sidney Powell accepts a plea deal, agreeing to testify against Donald Trump and the other co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case. Also tonight, the disgraceful Republican House caucus is still leaderless, with Jim Jordan vowing to make yet another embarrassing effort to win the speaker's gavel. Plus, we are just one hour from a major address to the nation by President Joe Biden on the dual foreign policy crises in the Middle East. And Ukraine. And we begin tonight with the release of the Kraken, but not in the way Donald Trump was expecting. This morning, we learned that one of Trump's key allies and legal agitators cut a deal with Fonnie Willis's office in the Georgia election interference case. Attorney Sidney Powell is the second defendant in the sprawling case to reach a deal with prosecutors. Powell pleaded guilty to six misdemeanors for conspiring to intentionally interfere with the performance of election duties. She will serve six years of probation, pay a $6,000 fine and write an apology letter to Georgia and its residents. She also agreed to testify truthfully against her co-defendants in future trials. She already has been doing some of that.
5: Do you understand is a special condition of this uh, sentence that you were to provide what you've already done, a proffer, a recorded proffer to the state and provide any documents and evidence subject to any lawful privileges asserted in a good faith prior um, prior to entering
4: this plea? I do. Her deal and the subsequent cooperation is the most immediate threat to the former president. It will also be our first real opportunity to hear from a key player from Trump's inner circle about what Trump was truly thinking in the days between him losing the election and the assault on our Capitol. This deal will also be extremely helpful to special counsel Jack Smith. But that does not mean that Powell is in the clear. She is one of the six unindicted co-conspirators in that case. In fact, she is co-conspirator number three. In that indictment, Smith notes that Trump privately admitted to others that Powell's unfounded claims of election fraud were crazy, but he kept pushing those lies publicly and in legal filings anyway. Powell spent hours with Trump and his aides pushing unhinged lies about the election and pushing for breathtakingly undemocratic measures, which included seizing voting machines and suggesting that the very deceased Venezuelan ruler Hugo Chavez was behind efforts to rig the election. She was so integral to Trump's plan to overturn the 2020 election that Trump was going to appoint Powell as a special counsel to investigate supposed election fraud. Part of the reason for that was her eagerness to appear on television and to push those unfounded claims. This is
3: stunning, heartbreaking, infuriating, and the most unpatriotic acts I can even imagine for people in this country to have participated in in any way, shape or form. And I want the American public to know right now that we will not be intimidated. We are not going to back down. We are going to clean this mess up now. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it.
4: <laughs> that appointment and her appearances were part of a larger strategy to help the Trump campaign delay the counting of electoral votes on January 6th. The proposal to appoint her as special counsel was so unhinged and dangerous that the White House lawyer Pat Cipollone warned Trump that every member of his White House counsel's office would resign.
1: I don't think Sidney Cindy Powell would say that I thought it was a good idea to appoint her special counsel. I was vehemently, I didn't think she should have be appointed to anything. There was a real question in my mind and a real concern, you know, particularly after the attorney general had reached a conclusion that there wasn't sufficient election fraud to change the outcome of the election. When other people kept suggesting that there was, the answer is, what is it?
4: And at some point, you have to put up or shut up. Just yesterday, Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee denied a a number of motions by Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell trying to dismiss all of the counts against them ahead of their trial, which is set to start Friday now just for Chesborough, or Cheeseborough, however he pronounces it. ABC News reported that Cheeseborough was offered a similar deal back in September, but declined. NBC has now confirmed that reporting. Trump's lawyer, Steve Sadow, issued the following statement in response to Powell's plea deal, quote, Assuming truthful testimony in the Fulton County case, it will be favorable to my overall defense strategy. Interestingly enough, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel just secured a cooperation deal with one of the 16 Republican fake electors in that state. And Joining me now is Katie Fang, former Florida prosecutor and host of The Katie Fang Show right here on MSNBC, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and an MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. Let me start by playing uh, for both of you ladies, Sidney Powell's 2021 podcast appearance, in which she describes her plan to delay certifying the 2020 election.
3: We were filing a 12th Amendment constitutional challenge to the process that the Congress was about to use under the Electoral Act provisions that simply don't jive with the 12th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And Justice Alito was our circuit justice for that. Then you know, everything broke loose, and she had to really speed up reconvening Congress to get the vote going before Justice Alito might have issued an injunction to stop it all, which is what should have
4: happened. Talk about the significance of having that person plead out. Is that to me? To to Barbara. Sorry. I'm I'm coming back to you in a second, Katie, but to Barb first.
5: Um, it's incredibly significant. One is just such an extreme about face. This is someone who was the spokesperson of, you know, releasing the Kraken and all of the things about, uh, Hugo Chavez and Venezuela and machines flipping votes to have her say that she's guilty, that she committed these crimes is incredibly important. One thing we have not seen yet is the recorded statement, the proffer that she gave to prosecutors that could be used to lock her into her story. Uh, I think some would say, well, Um, She will be cross-examined because of her prior inconsistent statements. Even Donald Trump at one time reportedly called her crazy. And yet when someone is aligned with someone who is on trial, be it Donald Trump or Kenneth Chesbrough, uh, prosecutors will typically say, we didn't choose this person to be our witness. The defendant chose this person to associate himself with in this plot. And so, uh, by having her testify, certainly you'd have to corroborate anything she has to say with other evidence, but she can be a very powerful narrator because she was in the room where so many of these events occurred.
4: And Katie, I uh, coming to you because you were one of the people who helped to confirm this information about, uh, Kenneth Chesborough or Cheeseborough having been offered his own plea deal. Very interesting that he was offered it first, he didn't take it. He would have had to plead guilty to a felony, um, and he. but he would have been able to get his record expunged and pay a $10,000 fine. Talk about his risks now, because he now is going to go to trial tomorrow. That trial starts tomorrow. It was supposed to be the two of them. Now it's just going to be him.
2: Yeah, so let's be clear. We don't know the timing of when these plea offers have been extended, Meeting Sidney Powell could have gotten this plea offer before Kenneth Chesbrough, but opted not to take it until the eve of trial. Why? Because as you noted in the beginning to this segment, there have been a series of denials of these motions to dismiss that Judge Scott McAfee in Fulton County has entered against Kenneth Chesbrough, as well as Sidney Powell. And I also want to remind everybody the following as well. Kenneth Chesbro didn't want to be tried with Sidney Powell and vice versa. They tried to actually be separated from each other when they both filed a speedy demand. And so at this point, Kenneth Chesbro is going to go to trial by himself. Doesn't mean he can't plead out at literally the last minute, but he's going to go to trial by himself. And if that's the case, then he's got serious exposure because now it'll be the full weight of the state of Georgia with Fonnie Willis. In the entirety of their 100 something witnesses against just Kenneth Chesbro. But now we're going to add another person to that witness list. That's going to be you know, Scott Hall. Yeah. And as well as Sidney Powell.
4: Right, because Scott Hall took the plea deal first. And this is the, the first person to take a plea deal, right? This was the bail bondsman. So now you have the bail bondsman and you have Sidney Powell, um, Katie. So they are going to be witnesses now against Chesbro, right?
2: Yeah. And if you consider the following, it's a great way of the dominoes falling, right? Because Scott Hall, as a Georgia bail bondsman, his main role was involving the Coffee County breach of the election equipment. He clearly had evidence against Sidney Powell. That was an incentive, I believe, for her to take a plea. Now you've got Sidney Powell, but Sidney Powell is definitely not one of those low rung co-conspirators. Right. She's the president's lawyer. She's Donald Trump's lawyer. She's the Trump campaign's lawyer. So not only does she have to provide truthful testimony, she has to turn over documents. And those documents are 100 percent going to implicate Donald Trump, as well as Jenna Ellis, who was standing behind her during that presser. Judy Giuliani. Remember, these are all co-defendants that have all been charged with RICO. And so under Georgia state RICO law. You don't all have to be planning it all together. Somebody could be doing something in one area of the state of Georgia or another part of the country, and you could be found guilty of RICO.
4: Yeah, and Barb, let, let, yeah, let's get into that, because this is where it gets juicy. I have my handy-dandy copy of the indictment with Ali Velshi writing the uh, forward for it. Uh, and I, it I'm going to take it with me everywhere I go, apparently, now. I, I'm going now to Act 145 through 147, in which Sidney Powell is mentioned. Uh, she's mentioned in uh, unlawful possession of ballots from Coffee County. Um, she's mentioned in unlawful computer trespass— also Coffee County, and computer theft, also Coffee County. So it looks like the Coffee County part of it. This was the seize the voting machines and find the Dominion, you know, software that flipped the election, that part of the plot. But to Katie's point, Barb, there are a lot more people who fan out from her and some people who the White House is, I mean, who the Trump camp has been a little worried about. Jenna Ellis has been saying a lot of stuff, making it sound like she's very unhappy. She's not getting her lawyers paid for. Are we looking at a situation now, the Giuliani's, the Jenna Ellis's, those are the next dominoes that Fonnie Willis would be looking at?
5: That's typically how prosecutors like to work these things, kind of work their way up the chain, although they they, they leapt a few levels here in getting to Sidney Powell, I think only because she asserted her right to a speedy trial uh, and so forced their hand to offer a plea deal a little earlier than they might otherwise have done. Instead of working their way one by one up the chain, Chesbro and Paul, with their trial date, needed to get a plea deal to them before that trial date. And so now that she has been secured, though, you're right, Joy, um, her testimony does not need to relate solely to those acts that she's specifically accused of. She can talk about anything that she knows that could be what's called substantial assistance against any other defendant or even uncharged party in these schemes. And so because she, for example, is in that Oval Office meeting on December 18th of 2020 with Giuliani and... um, Donald Trump and his White House counsel, and they're talking about things like seizing voting machines and appointing uh, Sidney Powell to be a special counsel. She can talk about all of the things that went on in that room. She was really in that inner circle of the plotting. And so it seems to me that she has valuable testimony against all of those people at those higher rungs.
4: So I I, I have a a two-part question for you, Katie Fang. Number one, what is her risk factor if she's not Honest about this. What happens? Because we Ooh. now know that Alan Weisselberg, in a whole different case, this is like in the financial case, uh, he's now being accused of lying on the stand. The um, attorney general's office in New York has, uh, filed a letter saying that he, ident- they have identified likely omissions in documents provided by the defendants, um, and, and that's not a good thing for him, right? He could go back to jail. Is this one of those things where she's gonna testify, and if she isn't completely truthful, her old charges get reinserted. So that's part one of my question. Part two is if I'm Jack Smith, uh, how excited am I about Sidney Powell? Because she's not, you know, one of my defendants, but she could be.
2: Well, yeah, to your point, she's an unindicted co-conspirator at this stage. So I love this question is there's a lot of chatter on social media about how she just get probation. She tried to subvert democracy and steal an election. Basically, how do you just get probation? Well, under the First Defenders Act in Georgia, she can be put on probation, but if she violates a term of her probation Joy, then you go back to square one, meaning you can't withdraw that guilty plea. And the judge can sentence you as if you had never agreed to the probation in the first place. So all of that exposure for prison kicks back in. So it's a real incentive for her to tell the truth. And if your special counsel, Jack Smith, and I want this to be clear too, she doesn't have an obligation Per this probationary term in Georgia to cooperate with Jack Smith. But you gotta okay. ask yourself if you're putting yourself on the line right now in Georgia to tell the truth and what happened in Georgia is directly related to what Jack Smith is investigating, you're gonna cooperate with Jack Smith. I mean, this is just the beginning of, I think, a
4: continuing
2: like service term of service that she's going <laughs> to have to provide to prosecutors in the United States at this point.
4: She, she works for the government now. Last question to you, Barb McQuaid. If I'm Walt Nada, in the whole other case, the classified documents case, Hugo Lowell um, from The Guardian tweeted um, that he now is scheduled to decide whether he wants to waive his rights to conflict-free counsel and keep his Trump PAC finance lawyer, Stanley Woodward, who acknowledged today for the first time that he may be constrained at trial— Remember, Walt Nada is the low level employee who's charged with Donald Trump in the classified documents case. If you're Walt Nada and you're starting to see people, it's a separate case from you, but big time people with money pleading guilty to crimes related to Donald Trump. Is that an incentive for you to maybe say, you know what, maybe I get off this Trump train, too?
5: I think so. I think, you know, you see this happen all the time where you've got a united front of defendants who, in a case, have said, we will never plead guilty. We will never cooperate. We are defending our innocence. And then as those trial dates approach, you see some crack in the unity. And then once one falls, so often so many others fall as well. Now, you know, these two cases are separate, but Mm -hmm. Walt is certainly watching what's happening and seeing this happen and has to be thinking about what is in his own best interest. And that's what he should do, what's in his own best interest. Katie Fang, Barb McQuaid,
4: appreciate you both. Up next on The Readout, I'm thinking Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin might have something to say about the complete and utter chaos House Republicans are causing on Capitol Hill. Should I ask him? I'm going to ask him. The Readout continues after this.
5: Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how VivGart, FGart Tigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot MOA. Brought to you by Argenics.
6: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
4: There are only two portions of the Constitution that reference the Speaker of the House. Article 1, Section 2 states that the House of Representatives shall choose their Speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. And the 25th Amendment describes the Speaker's role in presidential succession if the President is incapacitated as the second in line to the role. And then there is what you might call the Nancy Pelosi rule, which is the Speaker should never bring something to the floor that doesn't have the votes. Republicans don't seem to know either of those things. Today, they wasted another entire day fighting amongst themselves only to arrive right back where they started, speakerless. Lacking the necessary 217 votes, Jim Jordan temporarily backed off his speaker quest, agreeing to get behind a proposal to empower interim speaker Patrick McHenry until January 3rd, while Jordan would remain speaker designate. A closed-door meeting went so well, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy reportedly screamed at Matt Gates while another member lunged at Gates. The effort to empower McHenry and have some semblance of a functional house fell apart among Republicans, in part because it would require Democratic votes.
7: I think this is the wrong thing to do. Our Republican voters work very hard to give us our majority, and this conference is broken.
4: I worry that it
1: might actually exacerbate the, the divide we see in the caucus right now. It's
3: absurd, but there was but the, the biggest defeat to anything. Republican voters I've ever seen. <laughs>
4: So in the Groundhog Day fashion, Jim Jordan says the plan for now is to pursue a third House vote tomorrow, even as he continues to lose support and opposition is hardening from members who are getting literal death threats for not supporting him. Plus pressure from Sean Hannity. So here we are, 16 days without a speaker, less than a month from a government shutdown with two wars raging that require American funding that cannot get processed because the Republican-run House is paralyzed. Good times. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. I want to first uh, ask you, you know, I like to to use your role as a constitutional scholar and take advantage of that because I could get to nerd out with you. But um, Speaker McHenry, that's the speaker for now, told Republicans at a closed door meeting that he would resign as speaker pro tempore if his colleagues pushed him to bring legislation to the floor without taking a vote to explicitly expand his powers. Are there any enumerated powers, and is it even legitimate to expand the powers of a temp speaker?
8: Well, we are in unknown territory here. Um, You know, no party has ever uh, pushed the House of Representatives to this kind of uh, chaos and uncertainty before. Article 1 does say that each house can define the rules of its own proceedings. So, theoretically, in addition to the textual provisions that you invoked that refer specifically to a speaker, we could create a speaker pro tem, we could create a moderator, we could create an MC uh, for that matter. But then, of course, the question is, what is the authority of that person, um, because has the House of Representatives itself acted legitimately if we don't have a speaker? And nobody knows. And of course, that might have to be tested in court. So they are taking us to new horizons of chaos and parliamentary confusion that nobody's ever seen before at this
4: point. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the speaker's ever been thrown out. I mean, they, they, they were really making history here. The other sort of thing that has been notable about this mess have been the, the tactics of pro-Jordan forces. We don't know who specifically is doing it, but the death threats. Representatives Marionette Miller, Meeks, uh, Drew Ferguson, they both got death threats for not voting for Jordan. Um, you've got other members. Uh, Drew Ferguson told Republicans he had to have a sheriff station at his daughter's school over threats. Ken Buck has said he's had four death threats and gotten evicted from one of his offices in Colorado. I know of other members who've been accused of being communists, but they happen to be Republican conservatives um, and, and some of Cuban American background calling them communists. I mean, like the tactics and even having Sean Hannity's producers pressure people, that also feels unprecedented and it doesn't even seem to be effective. Your thoughts on that? Well,
8: this goes back to January the 6th, Joy, because if you fail to renounce and denounce political violence in very clear and explicit terms, it's going to come back to haunt you. So, first they come for Vice President Pence and Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, and then they come for Liz Cheney, and they come for Adam Kinziger, and then eventually they come to you, anybody who does not completely toe the line of the Trump sycophantic MAGA right. And that's where we are now. There will be death threats, there will be intimidation, there will be political threats, um... There will be calls uh, threatening violence to people's homes, to their offices, if they don't toe the line. And of course, um, Jordan's forces want to now put the you know the, the pedal to the metal uh, and go forward again tomorrow, thinking this by this may be the point of maximum fear and intimidation, and they might not be able to recover, you know, whatever progress they've been made they've been able to make up over the last day. I understand that Steve Bannon. Um, has been uh, exhorting his followers to turn up the heat in people's district offices, in their D.C. offices, and so on. But it's giving more Republicans a glimpse of the kind of intimidation and fear tactics that have been unleashed against anybody who stands in the way of Donald Trump and his preferred followers in Congress.
4: I'm glad that you invoked uh, January 6th because uh, Rachel Maddow was on with us last night and she had a very interesting take and theory on why the the purpose of all of this, what it may be. Take a listen.
7: Having Patrick McHenry be be named Speaker without voting for him does not work in the American system of government. That is not a way out of this. And so uh, sometimes things go slow until they go fast. And one of the things that has happened is that the Republican Party has
4: effectively abolished half of Congress. And Rachel went on to say that maybe that's the point, that maybe the point is to have no speaker, to have effectively no government, to dismantle the government from within and essentially allow the government to close down, shut down in less than 30 days and fail. What do you make of that?
8: Well, it goes back to Steve Bannon, who said when the first uh, Trump nightmares began to uh, sick themselves on the American people, we're going to deconstruct the administrative state, we're going to deconstruct the deep state. And of course, what they're really talking about is dismantling the Constitution of the United States. And that's why at every turn, we're just trying to defend essential constitutional functions. We want to pay the bills of America and not default on our creditors. We want to keep the government open and running rather than shut the government down. We want to make sure that the winner of the presidential election actually gets to take office rather than the loser through a series of outrageous tricks and maneuvers and violence. And so this is where we are. Um, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin have set the stage for what we're living through now, which is uh, no fidelity to the Constitution, no commitment to democracy, but rule or ruin. That is the dictum that inspires the extreme right in America. They're either going to rule over all of us or they're going to ruin our opportunity to meet the needs of the people through government.
4: Yeah, it is. It is pretty frightening. I do want to, while well, I have you here, since you were on the January sixth committee, give you an opportunity to comment on Sidney Powell uh, pleading out, um, pleading guilty uh, to now misdemeanors in the state of Georgia. Your thoughts on that?
8: Well, you know, there were so many criminal offenses that were committed at so many different levels, at the state level, at the federal level, by. Um, A lot of the key participants in these events that it doesn't surprise me that they will start to plead out in the hopes of um, escaping real justice and accountability um, in the process. So um, there are lots of crimes that are uh, obvious at this point. Um, it's very clear that th- what was attempted on January 6th was a political coup, and that political coup was backed up by a violent insurrection that drove the House and the Senate out of our offices. But it had been taking place for many weeks Um and at different levels. And I think that all of these offenses are coming to light. I feel proud of what we did on the January 6th Select Committee, because even though we didn't have the power to prosecute anyone, we did have the power to tell the story. And it's that story that set the factual predicate for the prosecutors to engage in prosecutions all over America now.
4: Uh, Indeed. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. And coming up, The latest on the incredibly dangerous and divisive conflict in the Middle East ahead of President Biden's primetime Oval Office address, which begins in about half an hour. We're back after this.
0: Top 302 is like no other course. Two 420 foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.
4: In the next hour, President Biden will address the nation from the Oval Office on the terrorist attacks by Hamas militants against Israel and Russia's war against Ukraine. The remarks come as millions around the world are fearful and grieving over the horrific scenes coming from Israel and Gaza and grappling with a debate that is deeply painful and polarizing. The humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza is spiraling deeper into devastation, with food, water, and medical supplies almost gone. Israel's military said Hamas is holding at least 200 people hostage in Gaza. Governments, including our own, are still piecing together what caused a massive explosion at Al-Ahi Baptist Hospital in Gaza on Tuesday. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. Despite the fury escalating in the Arab world over the hospital blast, a ground assault on the Gaza Strip is still likely in the coming days. Today, NBC News reported that Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Galant told soldiers they will soon see Gaza from the inside. Meanwhile, protests have erupted from coast to coast here in the U.S., including the loud but peaceful rally on Capitol Hill Wednesday by hundreds of Jewish protesters demanding a ceasefire. The fog of war is thick in what remains a horrific and deadly situation in Gaza. Throw in rampant misinformation and the search for truth feels overwhelming. Soon, President Biden will step into this extremely complicated moment to send a message to the American people about how Israel, Gaza and Ukraine connect to our lives here. The stakes really couldn't be higher as he grapples with deep divisions within his own party and in our country over what happens next. Joining me now from Tel Aviv is NBC foreign correspondent Josh Letterman. Also joining me, Ayman Moyhadeen, host of Ayman on MSNBC. Josh Letterman, let me go to you first. Um, give us the latest on the humanitarian situation in Gaza and the preparations for what does seem likely to be a ground war there.
9: Yeah, well, this is a moment where we are really seeing two conflicting uh, impulses and moves in this conflict, because at the same time that we are seeing some of the strongest signs from Israel that that ground incursion could be imminent, we are also seeing glimmers of hopes that there could be at least some temporary uh, improvement in terms of getting that humanitarian aid. So just as today, uh, we saw, as you mentioned, the defense minister, a meeting with Israeli troops on the border, telling them, you're going to see Gaza soon from the inside. We saw Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who also went down to uh, the border with Gaza uh, to really kind of rile up the troops and give them a pep talk. He asked them, you know, are you ready to go in? Uh, They replied, uh, you know, very enthusiastically, we are ready. We are going to be victorious. Uh, And Israel has really been amassing troops, even in the last 24 hours, uh, ready to pounce at any point in time. But yet at the same time, uh, we are also hearing that there could be a possibility that that long-delayed reopening of the Rafah border crossing with Egypt could come tomorrow. In fact, the UN Secretary General, he is now on the ground in Egypt, where he had a chance to meet with President Sisi today, uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres saying that he is there to witness these preparations for getting uh, that border opening uh, reopened. And so there's some hope that maybe that could happen tomorrow. But the time uh, is very narrow because the widespread assumption here on the ground, Joy, is that once Israel goes in uh, with a full on ground invasion uh, of Gaza, that is going to make it that much more difficult to get humanitarian flowing through any of the border crossings uh, with Gaza. And just today, uh, we saw a number of additional hospitals there have to seize activities. They shut down because they are simply out of fuel.
4: Uh, Eamon, you've reported from Gaza, you know, um, this area very well. So if we can just put the map back up, as you just as described to us, you know, what people will be facing if you have the Israeli army marching in from the north, you can see the south is shut. And then they are surrounded by the Mediterranean Sea, which they cannot uh, access, um, but for a few feet or a few miles, you know, a few um, yards into the sea. Um, there's nowhere for Gazans to go. How does it look if there's a full-on ground invasion inside the
10: Gaza Strip? Well, we kind of got a glimpse of that back in 2008, 2009 during Operation Lead. In fact, right in the, on the map there on the screen, that white line that divides the northern part from the southern part of the Gaza Strip is where Israel actually roughly divided the Gaza Strip back in 2008. They had a column of tanks move all the way to the coast and divided the north from the south. Uh, and it seems right now, just based on what the Israeli military has told Palestinians in Gaza to do is to move to the south, which means their focus perhaps is going to be on the north. But here in lies a little bit of the contradiction with Within some of the Israeli statements for a few reasons. One, uh, Israel has been bombing the South, even though it has told millions of uh, Palestinians, or at least a million Palestinians, to move to the South. uh, Airstrikes are still taking place in areas like Khan Yunus and in Rafah, where uh, thousands of Palestinians have huddled and gathered, thinking that they were going to be uh, safe for that time being. So there is a little bit of a disconnect there between what the Israeli military is telling Palestinians to do and what the military is doing with its actions. The second part is, uh, the. Israeli military has been very clear about this. They believe that Hamas has been hiding in the civilian populations of Gaza. When you tell the civilian population of Gaza to move south, if you believe that Hamas is hiding within the civilian population, then it also raises questions as to whether or not Hamas is simply going to move with the civilian population to the south. So there is the argument, the belief, that if Israel does move into the northern part of the Gaza Strip and Hamas has moved to the southern part of the Gaza Strip, Israel may not find what it is looking for, which is to destroy Hamas or to find Hamas leaders or figures that they are going to look for. Now if Hamas stays in the northern part of the Gaza Strip and Israel goes on, uh, then it's going to be a very challenging battlefield dynamic. It is an urban warfare setting. Hamas is believed to have built a very sophisticated and complicated network of tunnels, and many believe Hamas and certainly Hamas has been saying this uh, publicly, they want the Israelis to enter into this urban warfare where they believe they will have uh, a tactical advantage based on what they can do underground and and their ability to move her in some of these urban areas. So, uh, a lot of questions and certainly not a lot of clarity as to what the Objective of the military is not because the Israelis haven't said they are going to destroy Hamas, but certainly because a lot of questions remain about what that actually looks like and what happens the day after.
4: Um, I know we are out of time, but Josh Letterman, it, it, there's also some reporting that there's the emphasis is more on destroying Hamas than on finding the hostages. Is that accurate reporting?
9: Well, certainly the Israelis would dispute that. They say they are focused on both. But I think inherent in that is a lot of logistical questions about how you do that. Is that. Are those two goals essentially mutually exclusive? That is one of the real tragedies of this whole situation. There is an understanding, an acknowledgement within, I think, the Israeli military establishment right now that if they are going to carry out the mission that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, and the defense uh, sector here has outlined, that that is going to increase the likelihood that some, if not all, of these hostages are not going to be yeah. able to be coming home safely.
4: Uh, Josh Letterman, Eamon Mohideen, thank you both very much. And uh, when we come back, I'll be joined by my colleagues, Chris Hayes and Jen Psaki, as we await President Biden's Oval Office address, which is scheduled to start in about 20 minutes. Back in a sec. At the top of the hour, President Biden will deliver a rail, rare over Oval Office address to the nation where he's expected to appeal directly to the American people to stand by Israel in its war against Hamas and Ukraine in its war against Russia, while also making the case for billions of dollars in aid to both countries. It comes just one day after Biden's trip to Israel, where he met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and also brokered a deal to deliver hum- humanitarian support to Gaza. It also comes as the president's response to the war has garnered mixed reaction here at home. His handling of the conflict has been praised by centrist Democrats and even some Republicans, but has also received criticism from the more progressive wing of his own party, including some members of Congress. One official from his own State Department even resigned in protest. Joining me now are two of my wonderful MSNBC colleagues, Chris Hayes, host of All In, and Jen Psaki, former press secretary in the Biden White House and host of Inside with Jen Psaki, hard to choose who to go to first, but I'm going to do ladies first because that's the easiest way to go. So to, and you're here at the at the desk. And so, um, Jen, what do we expect to hear from the president uh, tonight? What do you think? Well,
7: I mean, he's only given one other Oval Office primetime address. Yeah. So this is a moment I think where there's a recognition within the White House, and I've talked to some of them today that he needs to explain to the American public why they should care. Um, Both about what's happening in Israel on the ground, why there's need to help the Israelis with more assistance and the Palestinians with humanitarian assistance, and also why it's important to help Ukraine. And I think he's going to talk a lot about the consequences of inaction. Right. I know you have a lot going on in your lives, everybody listening right now and paying attention. But if we don't act. We are letting the bad guys win. So I expect it to be high level and really make kind of a big, broad case to the public of why this matters. You
4: know, and Chris, um, you know, we, we don't like to think everything is all about politics, but we are in the early stages of a, a presidential campaign and Joe Biden is running for re-election. And I don't know if this is the way that you're perceiving it in sort of the circle of your world circle, but it seems to me that Americans are very much consumed with domestic affairs, with the price of rent, with the price of mm-hmm. living, the price of food and, and the idea of giving money. To Ukraine, let alone now giving money to Israel and putting more money into foreign, you know, conflicts is not exactly popular. Uh, And so Joe Biden, to me, seems like he has sort of a high hill to climb. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think there's some some polling differences in between those two conflicts. I think polling in support of, I mean, and this is, I think, a sort of attention span issue, polling for support of Ukraine right after the invasion in terms of military and financial support was extremely high. That has come down a bit as time has gone on. We see polling right now for financial or, or military support for Israel uh, qu- quite high. And again, that may or may not uh, sustain depending on, on what happens in the future. So so there's, you know, it, I I think more it's a sort of less of a um, issue problem and more of a salience issue, right? Like to your point... It's not particularly Ukraine right now. I do not think is front of mind concern. I think the freshness of what happened in southern Israel and the 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 sheer sort of like gruesome barbarity of the of the Hamas slaughter, the brutal images coming out of Gaza now means that this is front of mind. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how he weaves those two together, actually, is like a unified story to tell about these two specific conflicts, these two specific Parties in these conflicts and the the support the U.S. should should give them as a political story um, about U.S. interests and, and and also one that's palatable to voters.
4: Right, and I mean this is an interesting thing to me, Jen. Uh, the, the idea of combining these two stories, Mm -hmm. the risk in doing that is that Joe Biden has been praised, you know, even by Republicans for his handling of the Mm -hmm. situation um, with Israel and Gaza. Um, And he has been praised for bringing NATO together and his handling of Ukraine, I think, is pretty universal. Mm -hmm. But the Israel and Gaza piece has drawn a lot more Mm -hmm. friction inside of his own party. Mm -hmm. Um, You had Rashida Tlaib so I'll put her tweet up in which uh, the close of it says, you know, essentially, my community will remember she is Palestinian-American. She has family there. And there's a lot of anger uh, from Arab-Americans, from Muslim-Americans about the way that Joe Biden has handled this situation. He's not being universally praised among the Democratic base. A lot of younger people, I will say a lot of younger uh, African-Americans are, are not pleased with it. And they're seeing it in a frame that's similar to post 9-11 run up to Iraq in, in, in that frame, and also with a lot of empathy toward the Palestinians, which for a lot of people they feel he has not shown. D- does, does grouping these two issues together help him or hurt him?
7: Well, look, I, I think anyone who tells you that they're not thinking about politics in the White House every day is lying to you, Joy, yeah, and yeah. to you, Chris. Of course they do. Uh, but there are moments when you're the commander in chief where you can't make decisions through the prism of politics. This is not an easy political issue, as you've just outlined. And I think what he has to try to do tonight is not easy to weave together. And we'll all talk about it afterwards, yeah. which is to make clear uh, to the Israeli people, to the Jewish population in the United States, who this is their 9-11, the amount of pain. I have talked to so many people and friends and family members who feel this is like the Holocaust. Holocaust that their parents, their grandparents have been through, while at the same time acknowledging and recognizing the real visceral fear that people who are in the Muslim American community feel about the threats, about what they're seeing happening in Gaza, about the fact that people have nowhere to go and this is a humanitarian crisis. He needs to address both of those things. And Ukraine, in terms of weaving it together, part of this joy, I think, is the fact that he has no other choice. We're at a moment where my understanding is it's not going to be kind of a congressional proposal tonight, but he needs to make the case also to Congress. You need to act now. Otherwise, the bad guys are going to win. And and I think that's going to be a part of the theme, too. That's a lot to do in one yeah. 15 fifteen-minute speech, especially when there is no Congress. Go ahead, Chris. I mean, we've the three of us have been reporting
1: on. I mean, look, th- there's a reason that the conflict in in you know in, in Israel and the Palestinian territories is such a central conflict. It, 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 it is the central conflict. It's almost a cliche. Right. About when you talk about difficult things, we have all been covering this. We all Mm -hmm. know at at a visceral level, night in, night out, how difficult it is, particularly Mm -hmm. the rawness that Jen just talked about, about the, the, the sheer violence and brutality that we have seen over the last week. It is exceedingly difficult. There is no easy political win here. And there's no, we should also say, there's also no easy geopolitical win. I mean, right. in the international setting, right? I mean, we just saw him go to the region and have the summit that he was going to have with Mahmoud Abbas and Sisi and uh, and Jordanian officials canceled um, be- be- because of the aftermath of that explosion near a hospital in Gaza, the origins of which remain unconfirmed as of now. So, there is no easy audience in any direction in fact the domestic political audience might even be the easiest part of this but mm. there are huge audiences everywhere around the world both domestically and internationally that are cross conflicted and mutually exclusive like yeah. but the last thing i'll say to jen's point is that's what being president is yeah, yeah. that's the job and i will say i have been running a little parallel game, you know game in my head of like what would we be doing with donald trump as president right now uh-huh. What 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 would that look like when like being delicate and being like thoughtful and having relations like all of those things matter a tremendous amount, whatever decisions you decide to make. Um, and I think, you know, you're seeing some of the culmination of that long experience that he's had in these conflicts and in these regions, you know, in the way that he's performed the duties of president over the last week.
4: Uh, Absolutely. And and it's true. The maturity factor, I think, is an important thing. Mm -hmm. He's also invoked 9-11. And of course, this is being called Israel's 9-11. But he also invoked it in the sense that we as the United States reacted in a way that in looking back, a lot of people are not proud of. Um, The invasion of Iraq, the misuse of people's rage in order to create, you know, create the pretext for that invasion. As we're looking at a potential ground war in the Gaza Strip, uh, which will kill a lot of people. That is a packed community of already refugees. To you, Chris, first. Uh, How does he navigate that?
1: I I mean, that's the thing that I think is, to me, I I sort of know, I I have a sense of what he's going to say about Ukraine. I have a sense of what he's going to say about the Hamas attack. I have a sense of what he's going to say about the humanitarian situation. That question is, to me, the one that I'm most looking for. I mean, John Kirby, spokesperson for the National Security Council, said something a week ago. We are not going to backseat drive how the Israelis do this. There was reporting about, uh, you know, um, wires going out to State Department employees not to talk about de-escalation. That was week one. We have seen a significant alteration of that language from the White House in mm-hmm. week two. In the run-up to the president's appearance in the region, the 9-11 quote that you talked about, which what version of that what splitting of the difference we are going to get here tonight to me is is sort of the biggest open question that I don't actually know the answer to, but I'm going to be looking yeah. for.
4: And I, and for, for you, for the domestic political audience here, um, Jen, you know, the White House started out um, denouncing Democratic members of Congress for, um, you know, and the statements that they put out decried the loss of human life on both sides mm-hmm. and called for de-escalation. and They were denounced by the White House. How does uh, Biden approach the fact that there were, you know, there were 500 Jewish Americans in the Capitol protesting and demanding peace literally yesterday. 300 mm-hmm. of them were arrested. And, you know, Marjorie Green was calling them the sedition, the true sedition. How does he navigate that? Because inside of his own party, there are people who don't feel the way he does.
7: Well, first, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene will not be in the speech. I think we can all bet on that. Thankfully. I, I do think, Joy, that what I also think we should hear from the 9-11 quote, which I think is the most important thing he's said in the sure. last 24 hours, totally is also a concern about what is happening on the border with Lebanon, which is not, we, we he is concerned about, I know they are concerned about in the White House. And when he's talking about reaction, he's talking about, of course, the Israelis and what they're doing in Gaza. Sure. He's also talking about the impact on that globally, given there are a number of people, including Republican candidates, yeah. who are calling for a war with Iran.
5: Yes. So th-
4: that is another component that I th- certainly think we could listen for in the speech. I'm going to give you the last word, Chris, because you are. We're, th- there's, this is also a handoff. This is my long handoff to you. I'm going to give you the last word. <laughs> yeah,
1: to Jen's point, I mean, the, the, the one of the most pressing things, and I've talked to some U.S. officials and, and other seasoned diplomats over the past week. Um, one of the most pressing things is this notion of regional conflagration, um, other parties getting involved and things going and spiraling from there. And part of what is the tipping point of that is going to be what happens in the next few days and what the president has communi- pr- pu- communicated privately to the Israelis about how they the, how they undertake this.
4: Yeah. And, Jen, uh, I want to thank both of you, Chris Hayes, Jen Psaki. Uh, it's been wonderful to be here with you here at the end of all things. Uh, if you guys don't know that quote, look it up. It's... It's a great movie. Uh, thank you both. We'll see you again after President Biden's address to the nation.